I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in our 2021 vision series, A Narrow View of the Whole World. Creating a rule of life is neither haphazard nor one-size-fits-all, but flows from the unique season of your life and your stage of apprenticeship, your life context. Uh, I was thinking this week about the way that everything infers aside, this is nothing new, we've talked about this often in our church, and I'm sure you've talked about it, in your respective spheres of socializing, everything infers aside, as in, whose side are you on? In our fever dream of hyper-politicizing everything, choosing a side and brandishing a side for many is very, very important. Earlier this year, a lot of our kids went back to school. So, of course, there have been all kinds of new pandemic protocols to follow, keep everybody safe, and people are upset about them, upset about there not being enough or too many. And one of the normal mainstays is that kids wear masks at school. So every morning, I get these kids ready for school, and I get them masked up, or I guess more accurately, I forget the masks, and then as I'm walking out the door, my wife says, mask, 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 and I go, oh, right, 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 and then I hand them out. But on the first day of school, I was driving up trying to remember everything, and I couldn't remember at the drop-off if parents were required to wear a mask. But the way, way I figure it, most of the time masks are required, so I usually just have one in my pocket, so it doesn't bother me at all. I just threw it on, and I was proud of myself for thinking ahead. Then, as we approached the school building, I saw another adult in one of those masks with like the little breathing apparatus on it, you know, like on either side, like a gas mask. They had a shield, a full hazmat-esque gown, and big rubber gloves that went up to the elbow, which is really cool looking. Um, but I thought, oh, they win. So, <laughs> you know, a few weeks ago, I traveled to Alabama, and I spent the weekend playing music with some old friends. And it's weird hanging out with old friends uh, in a tense, fragile, hyper-political world. These are people I don't keep in regular contact with, but they've been my friends for a long time. So you don't really know where anyone's at on any given thing. And I I don't want to argue with these people. So it's fine with me. I'm entirely apolitical. I don't really care, so whatever. But then you mention anything in culture. You mention a certain artist or a movie or a comedian in passing, conversational stuff, and you'll watch a few hackles rise. And you'll be, uh-oh, they don't like that one. And then people start to look at you sideways, and they're like, you like them, or you watched that, or you listened to that. Are you one of them? Because we like people categorized. We want good guys and bad guys. We want our team, and we want to hate the other team. And no team, as far as I can tell, will get you in more trouble with all sides and all teams than Team Jesus, which is interesting because we follow Jesus. And following Jesus means doing the things that he did, the way he did them, the way he tells us to do them. And for a number of very legitimate reasons, that can be pretty tough. And maybe, maybe we don't say that enough. Obviously, we believe that this is the best way of life. If we didn't, we wouldn't be here. But this is weird, wild stuff, following Jesus. That's why these prosperity gospel people, they just up and dressed the whole thing up and started saying, choose Jesus and everything will be awesome. Your best life now. Woohoo! And Jesus' PR campaign was decidedly different. Come and die. You will have trouble, Jesus said. Don't get me wrong. It's not all death and trouble. It's freedom and hope and resurrection, the renewal of all things, the life, Jesus said, that is truly life. Again, all things Jesus said. But you and I know things that really matter, things that are truly worthwhile, 
are, I would argue, always also costly, like love itself, or friendship, romance, marriage, raising kids, making art, pursuing a dream. These are costly, often painful things that we pursue because it's not just worth it. We believe that the cost is part of the thing's value. Following Jesus is, I believe, freedom, hope, resurrection, the renewal of all things, life to the fullest, and it costs, which is why Jesus led with, come and die. You will have trouble. Following Jesus is tough. It's beautiful and it's difficult. And one reason is because you can't just copy-paste the lifestyle of Jesus into your own day-to-day world. Think about that. Jesus, to begin with, was a Galilean Jewish male. He was an itinerant peasant rabbi who lived and worked in the ancient Near East. Are you? Most of us are not all of those things, and most of us are none of those things, or a lot of us are none of those things, I should say, and yet we talk all the time about being like Jesus. We want to do the things that Jesus did, we always say, and by that we mean in the here and now. What would Jesus do? You remember the bracelet. It was a big thing. (laughs) Okay, so great, but how do you Be like Jesus when your setting and time and place are so unlike Jesus, when you're all kinds of things that Jesus wasn't, meaning how do you follow Jesus as a mother, for example? Jesus wasn't a mother, but how would Jesus mother? What would Jesus do if he were a mother, in other words? Or how do you follow Jesus as a husband, Jesus wasn't, or a wife, or a nurse, or an engineer, or a tattoo artist, or a city worker, or a dad? Those are the kinds of things that we are. So how do we embody the lifestyle of Jesus when Jesus was none of those things? Sure, Jesus did all kinds of crazy stuff as a Galilean Jewish male itinerant peasant rabbi who lived and worked in the ancient Near East. How do you do those things? It can be done, I would argue, in crafting what the early church called a rule of life. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you're new to Van City Church, we have just begun our annual vision series, which is a time for us to kind of circle up, remind one another why we're here, what we're doing, and where we're going in the months ahead. In the months ahead. If you missed last week, go back, catch up on the podcast. That was important overview stuff for the weeks to come. For now, let me summarize by saying that when the early church wrestled with the question of how to best adapt and implement the lifestyle of Jesus into different settings and contexts, they designed something called a rule of life. It's kind of like a calendar, kind of like a code by which one lives. And last week I pointed out that we, a busy, distracted, autonomous people, are often averse to rules and codes and discipline in general. Although for a few of you, the idea of a disciplined life rhythm makes, you know, you lean forward in eager anticipation, three or four of you in the room, on the edge of your seats, oh man, give us some rules to follow, a bunch of weirdos. Um, My wife is one of them. When Monica Geller says uh, in season five of Friends, rules are good, rules help control the fun. That's an amen moment for my wife, Abby. And when she gets excited by that quote, she is as strange to me as if we'd never met. Anyway... All of us live by certain rhythms and routines, good or bad, organized or chaotic. Whether you like rules or not, you already have a rule of life. 
It's probably not in writing, and maybe you haven't give it, given it much intentionality to speak of, but there is a basic rhythm by which you live, and that is your rule of life. So by deliberately crafting a rule of life based on the lifestyle of Jesus and the practices of the early church, we examine our rhythms and routines in our context, our season of life. We dispense with the unhealthy things and we organize the things that enable us to thrive as disciples of Jesus. Andy Crouch defines it as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. We follow Jesus. The goals of anyone who follows Jesus are threefold. To be with Jesus, to begin with. Eventually, to become like Jesus so that you can learn to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. We just spent all summer in Colossians talking about what it means to be with Jesus, to be connected to the Spirit of Jesus, to be in tune to God's Spirit by a disposition of gratitude. But that begs the question, how the heck do we accomplish goals two and three, being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did? Must we become rabbis? Should we travel around attempting to heal the sick and preaching the kingdom? That would be like Jesus. Is that what we're supposed to do? Or forget the hyper-specific stuff. Do we all have to wake up early to pray like Jesus, for example? Even if our particular season of life makes the evenings more feasible, Jesus did in the morning, should we do it like Jesus? The rule of life is the most practical and effective tool that I've found personally to translate the lifestyle of Jesus into your season of life and stage of apprenticeship. There's no one design for a rule of life, but ordinarily the categories unfold thusly. Abiding, mind, body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and gospel and hospitality. You organize these things by rhythms, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual practices. So, for example, some things I do daily, like reading the Bible or prayer. Other things I do weekly, like going to my fan city community or being at church with you guys. Some things I do monthly, like fasting. Uh, my family takes trips every quarter, two small trips, two vacations. So that's part of our family rule of life. I wrote into my annual rule of life, a day of silence and solitude that happens every single year, all day long. But before we get to all that, before we get to the rhythms and the categories and how to implement them with specificity, the best way to approach those seven categories and their repetitions is to take a self-assessment. In his book, Crafting a Rule of Life, Stephen A. Micaiah writes, a rule of life allows us to clarify our deepest values, our most important relationships, our most authentic hopes and dreams, our most meaningful work, our highest priorities. It allows us to live with intention and purpose in the present moments. To begin, he argues that your personal rule of life will be best realized when it is written from five dimensions of your personhood. These are your roles, the roles that you currently occupy as a person, your gifts, your desires, your vision for your life, which then translates into the mission of your life. Don't freak out. I know it's a lot of terms and a lot of categories. We're going to get to all of them. So let's define each of these categories, roles, gifts, desires, vision, and mission from the life of Jesus. Who better to start with than Jesus? That brings us to Matthew 13. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of Scripture? And let's read from Matthew 13, beginning with verse 54. Coming to his hometown, 
he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters still with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, this is a story that we've already unpacked in detail back in our ongoing study of Matthew, but tonight I I only want to draw your attention to a few passing, seemingly surface details. So look down at the text again. In verse 54, 54, we read that Jesus was teaching, specifically in a synagogue, meaning that Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi, specifically. And then in verse 55, we read that Jesus is the son of the local carpenter. Learning Jesus' dad's profession tells us something fascinating about Jesus himself. In Jesus' context, he would have apprenticed his human dad, Joseph, in the family trade. The word translated as carpenter is actually tecton in Greek, which describes a craftsman or an artisan. We used to think that Jesus was like a woodworker, but since there wasn't much wood to speak of in Nazareth, scholars now believe he was probably something more like a stonemason. And that means that for the first decades of Jesus' life, that's what he was up to. He wasn't going around healing the sick or preaching the kingdom yet. In a very long, significant season of Jesus' life, he was making things out of rocks with his dad. He was a son, and he was a craftsman. And that same verse goes on, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Jesus? Aren't all his sisters with us? Which is interesting. That means that Jesus had a mother, he had brothers, and he had sisters, which means that he was a son and he was a sibling. And before the story ends, Jesus adds that he said to them, prophet, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. So Jesus understood himself to stand in the tradition of Old Testament figures like Isaiah or Jeremiah who came to provoke and inspire Israel to turn their hearts back to Yahweh. Jesus was a prophet. But he was more than that. Turn just a few chapters to the right to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, and let's begin reading with verse 13. The story goes, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So notice, Jesus travels with apprentices or disciples who he describes not just as students, but friends. Jesus was a friend. And he goes on, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter, one of the disciples answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Jesus wasn't just a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Both he and his close friends understood that he was the long-awaited king of Israel or the anointed one or the Messiah. And he was the son of the living God. And from the roles that Jesus fulfilled, we also learn about his unique gifts. 
Sounds really strange, uh, I know, to talk about Jesus' unique skill sets because it logically implies that he was good at some things. And then in some sense, it probably follows that he was not good at other things. But honestly, that makes a ton of sense. Jesus may have been without sin, but he was a man. He was God, but he was also a man. He wasn't Superman. He didn't actually try to do everything. So maybe, I don't know, maybe Jesus couldn't paint or sing that well. Maybe he had a really flat singing voice. I don't know. Maybe you could beat Jesus in football, at football, whatever. (laughs) Maybe we'll see, you know, who knows. I'm not good at uh, competitive things, personally, but I I would like to play Jesus in Street Fighter 2. Turbo, preferably. The way I see it, I've chosen this, Jesus has probably had better things to do than getting good at Street Fighter 2, but lucky for me, I haven't. So uh, my point is, maybe he wasn't awesome at everything because it wasn't his job to do everything. Embracing limits is a crucial aspect of emotional health and spiritual maturity, and Jesus had both in spades. And maybe that seems like a weird thing to zero in on, that Jesus was good at some things, not good at other things, but this is actually huge. I can honestly think of few things more freeing than understanding this and taking it seriously. Jesus was particularly gifted in many ways. In the gospel, we learn he was good at teaching and leading. Those are the obvious obvious ones. He was really good at interpersonal skills, Uh, He was extremely intellectual, smart, brilliant, academia. He was studious. He knew about Greek philosophy. He knew about the Torah. He was good at craftsmanship. Apparently, he made things out of rocks. He was creative. He crafted all sorts of stories and parables on the fly. He was good at hospitality and welcoming people in and making them feel comfortable. These are just a few things that Jesus was good at. And these roles and skills informed the desires of Jesus. Turn just a few chapters to the right to Matthew chapter 23. As a Jewish man, a son, a brother, a rabbi, a prophet who was gifted in teaching, understanding the Torah and, and his ability to care for other people, there were things that Jesus wanted for his life. Let's read Matthew 23 verse 37. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often, listen, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus longed. He wanted. He had desire. He wanted to use his roles and his gifts to teach and show Israel the truth and to bring them back to God. Of course, that's not the only thing Jesus wanted. We also read about the way that Jesus longs to seek those that he called the lost meaning those who didn't know the truth or who had wandered away from the truth. And when Jesus first took communion with his closest friends, he told them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. He wanted to be with his students, his friends, his community. He wanted to know them and share the intimate details of life with them. So Jesus' roles and his desires informed both his vision for life and his mission In the world, Jesus understood himself to be inaugurating God's kingdom. He explained his vision and mission by quoting the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of Yahweh is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. The authors of the New Testament explain his mission in beautifully simple terms. 
God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Or, this is one of my personal favorites, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That is the mission of Jesus. Now, Here's where I'm going with all that. The things that Jesus did, his rhythms and routines, his habits and disciplines, they weren't haphazard or arbitrary. They were deliberate. Jesus knew what he was doing. Imagine that. He didn't just wake up and kind of figure, I'm, stuff will happen to me today and we'll see what goes on. I might as well go and be alone because I kind of feel like that this morning. He planned those things. He thought through them deliberately. He didn't just wander into the wilderness by mistake and figure, I'm lost. I might as well fast for, well, let's call it 40 days just to be super spiritual in case the devil shows up. And then 40 days go by, well, would you look at that? I was dead on. Now, Jesus understood his unique roles, all those things that he was a son and a sibling and a friend and a prophet, the Messiah, the Son of God. He understood his skill sets, that he was a teacher and a leader and a pastor. He, he understood what he wanted to turn the heart of Israel and all people back to God. And that was his vision in the world to become the Messiah, to fulfill the Messiah's mission. And his mission in the world was to do exactly that. And out of all that, Jesus lived by his own rule of life. Many of us do nothing of the sort. We're sort of waiting for organic spiritual disciplines to sort of happen to us. Or we're waiting to kind of feel like it. I haven't got the itch yet, but at some point I'll figure this all out. Believe me, I've heard lots of this in my years as a pastor. I've been a part of it in my many years as a disciple of Jesus. People have come up to me and asked over the years, why do we have to get together every Tuesday night or whatever in community and talk about following Jesus? It feels so contrived. It feels so forced. And I always say, it is. It is contrived. It is forced. Who in the world is going to organically get together with the exact same people, no plan, just by happenstance, you end up in the same house every week at the same time on a regular basis to share life, talk about discipleship. I have never met this person. If they exist, please, I'm willing to admit I was wrong, but you don't. So to craft a rule of life for this season and stage of your apprenticeship, you have to think about who you are, what you're good at, and the things that God has asked you to do, and the person that God has asked you to be. Our deacon of prayer, Katie, she says it a bit like, uh, it's a bit like parenting yourself, she said, providing discipline and parameters that help you grow and mature as a person. And that's something we'll get into in more detail as we go. But for this week, when you meet with your Van City community, or you know, if you're not in one yet, you want to get together with a couple of friends, we're inviting you to think through each of these dimensions of your rule. So here's a brief word on each before we end. First, you have to think through your roles. Your personal rule of life is framed in the context of your primary relationships. So you have to think through them, the roles that you play in each. Meaning, are you a friend, a sister or brother, a son or a daughter? Are you a husband or a wife? Are you a mom or a dad? And then beyond that, are you a leader or are you a collaborator? Are you a support? Are you an artist or are you an entrepreneur or a nurse or a contractor or a pilot or an engineer? Now, to be sure, your roles are not your identity in the strict sense, meaning your identity is actually exceedingly simple. You are God's beloved daughter. You are God's beloved son. That is your identity. You may also be an artist or an engineer, but 
If that was taken from you, and it could be, you would still be who you are, beloved of God. That's your identity. Your identity is not found in your skills or your job or your money or your sexuality or your success or your failure. Your identity is in God. But that doesn't mean that your roles don't matter. They do. They're tethered to the people in your life and the things that God has asked you to do. So listen to this. This is fascinating. Many experts argue that it is impossible to maintain more than five to seven major relationships in your life with any sincere depth and remain a healthy, balanced human being. I would argue that they're probably right. It doesn't mean that you can't know more people. It doesn't mean that you can't associate with more than five to seven people. But it should be a sobering wake-up call about how to prioritize your time and how you think about your roles. Probably only five to seven people can fully know you. But you can have meaningful relationships with more people. Both are worth your investment, but knowing that, the difference between deep, meaningful relationship and meaningful friendships that aren't fully known and that you don't fully know, that helps us prioritize our time within our roles and relationships. So part of your rule of life prep work will mean taking a good look at each role that you play, which ones drain or exert you, and which ones, which ones are life-giving, which of your roles are healthy and which ones are decidedly less so. Based on your season of life and stage of apprenticeship, which roles require the most attention right now and which should be uniquely prioritized? That's how to think through your roles. And next are your gifts. To craft a rule of life, you need to understand your gifts, your natural talents, your unique wiring and personality, and what ways has God gifted you to do good for the sake of the kingdom. I'm not just talking about things like drawing pictures or doing yo-yo tricks, though those are great. Are you naturally hospitable as a person? Are you naturally patient? Or are you by nature an empathetic person? And also, what are your talents? Can you sing or paint or build or solve problems or make things? How would the people closest to you answer those questions about you if you asked them? What am I good at? What do you see in me? What's my natural wiring and disposition? Are you intellectual and reserved, or are you social and outgoing? Are you optimistic and idealistic? How do you walk through pain and suffering? You think through your gifts, your talents, and your temperament. This is something best done by inviting other people into the process. Ask your closest friends. Ask the people in your community. And then ask yourself, what are my deepest longings? Another way of putting that same question, I think, is what are my core values? If you don't know, what do I long for? Let's think about what is value, valuable to you or what are your desires? What desire has God nestled deep in your soul, the pursuit of which brings you to life and great joy? Do you want to see justice done in the world in some specific way? Do you want to care for foster kids or the poor? Do you want to combat racism and oppression? Do you want to challenge or provoke by making art? Do you want to change something wrong in the world, or do you want to add something that seems missing from the world? Do you want to give of yourself by pouring your life into raising children to follow Jesus? Ask yourself, based on these deep desires, how much of your life, as it is right now, actually flows from and back into the deepest desires of your heart? If you look at those desires on paper, are they consistent with the way that God made you? 
with what He is asking you to do with your life. Remember, that doesn't necessarily mean that if your desire isn't to be you know, a foreign missionary or work for a justice at a nonprofit, that that isn't from God. God may have placed a desire on your heart to cook or to raise kids or to write music or to teach or to work in an office, things that in their own way contribute goodness and justice and meaning to the world rather than evil. What are the desires of your heart? If you can articulate those desires, you can set them within a long-term vision for your life. This is big and broad, a life's work that will likely feed into most things you do rather than just one simple thing. When I wrote mine, for example, I wrote in my journal, I was trying to figure out how to boil this down and simplify it, to say it in some simple way that I could wrap my head around. And I wrote, what will be said of me when I'm dead? Because, of course, you know, you have to frame it in as morbid terms as possible. Always with the death. Maybe your vision is to act as a spiritual mother to your own kids, to other people. Maybe your vision is to create things that draw others' attention to God in some way or to do and inspire justice in a time and place. Big, broad things, not necessarily specific because it will change over time. And then you ask yourself, what am I currently doing to pursue my vision? You don't need a solid vision for your entire life right this second. Maybe you're not sure yet. That's absolutely fine. So just ask yourself right now, who do I want to be in the general big broad sense? And if you take small steps now, you might unearth a bigger vision for the future on the way. So you ask right now, what is my mission? What are the specific purposes unique to this season and stage that God is inviting you to fulfill, to live out of your roles and your gifts and your desires and the big broad vision of your life? What roles and relationships need more attention in order to fulfill your vision and your mission? Which roles and relationships need to decrease or even be eliminated? What responsibilities need focus and prioritizing? On which should you pump the brakes? These are the dimensions that will inform your entire rule of life, your rules, gifts, desires, vision, and mission. Thinking through each will prepare you to craft your rule of life. Remember, your rule of life, we often say, is written in pencil, not ink, meaning it will inevitably grow and evolve and adapt with your life and the evolving needs and focus of your apprenticeship. Mine has changed a ton even in the last three years. The rhythms that I had pre-pandemic, for example, were very different by the time, or they became very different by the time 2020 really picked up. Uh, my rhythms as a father of three are already very different than when I was a father of two just a few months ago. It doesn't mean that it isn't organized or that I don't commit to it or it's so loosey-goosey and it doesn't just matter. It just means that the disciplines and rhythms crucial for one season and one stage will likely shift as you mature and inevitably shift as your life circumstances change and you have to change with them. But there is, remember this, there is one person that you are, and there are many people that you are not. Your rule of life should reflect that. Your rule should release you into letting go of what isn't yours so that you can hold fast to what is yours. There are many good, admirable visions and missions that are not yours to take up. And there are many wasteful and negligent things to which you can dedicate your time and focus that are not your, your vision, your mission, and that do not honor 
your roles and your gifts, your season, your stage. Uh, I'll be vulnerable with you guys for a minute. I've only been a pastor for six or seven years now. I've spent much more time participating in church than leading it. I think sometimes there's this kind of perceived chasm between the people who go to church and the people who lead the church as if we're fundamentally different people. We aren't. This is my church too. I actually go to church here. And that's the way I describe it to people. Go to, I go to church. I go to church on Sunday. And I understand as well as anyone that like following Jesus, community is hard. I'm not naive about that whatsoever. I have been in our particular version of weekly community with shared life and discipleship and all that for about a decade now. And we have had it all in our community. Believe me, ups and downs, pain and suffering and tragedy and joy and beauty, celebration, friendship, the whole spectrum. I get it. It's very hard. But one thing deeply discouraging to me about the way that I've heard so many talk about church and community is usually framed as an encouragement, ironically. And it's when people talk about church like it's the equivalent of their parents telling them to eat their vegetables. So they'll say things like, man, we so did not want to come to church tonight because we're busy or whatever, but we're glad we decided to bite the bullet and show up because in the end, we felt good about it. And I think, man, that's how you think about church? And don't get me wrong, again, following Jesus can be hard. Community can be hard. But the family of God is not like a morning jog that you desperately don't want to take, but you feel good that you got it over with once it's done. If your life is crowded and busy to the degree that you badly want to cut church and community, look at it again. Something else needs cutting. And I'm not saying that if you don't bounce through the doors every week, overflowing with joyful energy, that you're doing something wrong. I don't, so you'd be in good company. I'm saying that church and community are fundamental to following Jesus, and they are good things, inherently good things. And if you feel otherwise, then you have to ask yourself, what is competing for your love, and what needs to change as a result? In late 2019, my wife Abby and I found ourselves constantly grumbling over our own decisions. We'd look at the calendar on Monday and see what was ahead for the week, and we would say, crap, there's something every single night this week again. We kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And the thing is, believe it or not, uh, my wife and I really like each other. This is not an act. Um, <laughs> earlier this week, I was trying to get, I was laughing to myself because I was trying to get out the door to go to work, but I kept hanging around uh, because I just wanted to talk to Abby and I was laughing and just enjoying her company without a child interrupting me every five minutes because they were at school. And uh, I was like, oh man, this is, I should really go. But hey, did you think of this, listen to this other story and we'd talk some, some more. It's true. It's been kind of a lonely season the, the last couple of years. Things have shuffled in the world in my life to the degree that I've often felt like I've found myself in this weird place where I don't have close, meaningful friendships outside of my house. And I've been consistently grateful to not only love, but to like my wife. We actually enjoy hanging out. We are friends. I say all this because circa late 2019, we also had a lot of social stuff going on, both of us. Good things, but due to poor planning and saying yes to too many things, we'd crowd our evenings with commitments. And we'd say, man, we need to have some nights with just each other. We'll be glad we did. And I sat back and I was like, man, what the heck is this? Talking like quality time was a workout that we couldn't afford to skip. Yes, it's tough, but come on, we really need to clear the calendar. Let's get through it. 
And then 2020 hit, and it cleared the calendar right the heck out. And every, every night, it was just us, and we loved it. And don't get me wrong, we are not antisocial. In fact, I am relational to a fault. I want to hang out with people all the time. And we're both back to, you know, hanging out and seeing people as much as we can with two young kids and a newborn. But we have learned to prioritize out of sincere love rather than forced discipline. We don't get it perfect all the time, but we realize that we are the priority to each other. Everything else is going to have to get in line. And it took a major change in the whole world to reorder those loves and remind us of what we already knew. I am not here because you pay me to be here. I'm really not. Don't get me wrong. I am so grateful to have this as my job. It's incredible. I, I love it. It's been amazing. That's not a put on. Believe me, I would tell you if I felt otherwise. But I'm, I could be doing other things. I'm not here because I have to eat my vegetables or because I know I'll feel good about it afterward. I am here because I have learned over the years to love and believe in the church. I actually believe in this. And it's part of my rule of life. It's part of my code. My rule taught me to love the church. I didn't walk through the doors of a church because I already loved it. I committed and I learned to love it through my rule. This is my priority. I have been embracing this code long before anyone paid me to be here. On Sunday night, I am booked, and it has been that way for years and years and years. A rule of life is the outgrowth of the simple realization and acknowledgement of who you are and what is yours to steward in this season of your life, this stage of your apprenticeship. It is, in the broad sense, a way of life, but the specifics, the details, will vary and change from season to season. I think it would be good and admirable to dedicate one's life to building orphanages in India, and maybe someone else would think that that's more worthwhile than leading a little church and you know, writing books or whatever it is that I do, but that is not what God asked me to do. And it's not what I'm good at. It's not conducive to my rules or my vision or the mission that God has given me. On the other side of things, I would very much like to spend absorbent amounts of time just reading novels, watching movies, and playing Metroid with my kids. And I would do all these things for hours every day. And they're not bad things. None of them are bad things. But there are other things more pressing for me. And so I have to prioritize thoughtfully, deliberately, with discipline, my time, order things in such a way that I don't neglect who I am, what Jesus wants me to do, and who I am to become by His Spirit in me. And maybe you're not sure how to answer those questions, who you are, what Jesus wants you to do, who he wants you to become. So to you, if you're like that and you're like, man, I have no idea right now, that's totally fine. All of us have been there. Many of us will be there again. My encouragement is this, start by asking the Spirit and then keep asking. I realized at a certain point of my life when I was kind of trying to figure out, I was in transition, what the vision and mission were for my life, and I talked a lot about not knowing, and I realized I had spent no time asking the Spirit of God to clarify for me, asking people in my community to speak into my life. So sit down with people you know well and who know you well, people who have more experience and wisdom would be ideal, and ask what they see in you. Ask them about your strengths and your weaknesses and you know, have thick skin and listen to what they have to say. I remember a few years ago, Patrick, who works here at Van City, he was between gigs and he specifically reached out to several people and just asked them point blank, look, I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do with my life. What do you see in me? What do you think I'm good at? 
Where do you think I should go? I'm sure he got all kinds of different answers, but he went and asked and listened. So that's my encouragement. Ask, listen, and then start to prioritize your time to honor and pursue those things. Maybe they're super vague. They don't have a ton of specificity, but you can still move in a direction. Every single person says that I'm hospitable, that I'm kind, that I bring other people into my home. Okay, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do with that? Who am I becoming? How can I order my time in such a way that I'm growing in that discipline and becoming who you want me to be? I kind of suspect that many of us feel as if our lives could use some organizing, a bit more discipline or focus or productivity, however you want to put it. Certainly a great many of us would very much like to experience what Jesus called life to the fullest. But I also suspect that some of us think deep down that if we were more organized, more disciplined, more productive, maybe we would do something incredible sounding. That's the only thing that stands between us and this incredible thing that's going to happen in our lives. We would be building orphanages or putting out fires in Australia, or we'd be starting that nonprofit or that new business or that pop-up. We would... We think that if we organized everything, then we'd have our neighbors over every night. We'd be sharing the gospel constantly, or we'd be praying for hours every single morning. Or, you know, if we got everything together, we'd become influencers. We'd become movie stars and famous musicians. And I don't know, maybe you would. But thinking like that only widens the gap between where you are and where Jesus is inviting you to go. What if a really good rule of life will, more than anything right now, make you a less anxious person. How about that? What if your rule just makes you a more patient mom? Or what if a good rule of life will enable you to just get a bit better at hearing God's voice right now? Or processing some painful thing going on at the moment? Or to get better at forgiving other people? Or to get some peace? in the chaos of the world? What if your rule of life won't turn you into some incredible thing that you've imagined on the horizon, but it'll just make you less busy and it will help you adjust your priorities? What if a good rule of life won't send you overseas or turn you into a monk or bring you followers or bring your entire block to faith in Jesus, but it gives you more time to rest and it helps you feel like you can put your phone down and it helps you prioritize time with the people that you love. If you approach this whole thing imagining the intended result is to transform you by way of a spreadsheet into an idealized spiritual super you, then one of two things will happen. You'll bum yourself out when you realize it just doesn't work that way, or, and this is more likely, you'll intimidate yourself out of trying before you even start. Don't do yourself that disservice. A lot of the rule of life I have found is really just taking a thoughtful look at the good stuff already in your life and then intentionally finding ways to prioritize and treat it well. Sure, you will also likely do a thing or two that you weren't doing before, but when you rightly order the things that you value, the things that are less valuable naturally move to the bottom of the list. This week, when you get together with your Van City community, you'll head to vancity.church slash vision series and talk through the dimensions of your rule, roles, gifts, desires, vision, vision, and mission. You spend an evening like this talking about Jesus' rule of life, and it's easy to feel intimidated, but I don't believe that Jesus is asking you to slavishly copy and paste His rule. I think that He's inviting us to ask, 
how would Jesus' lifestyle best translate to my time and place, my season of life, my stage of apprenticeship? What does the lifestyle of Jesus look like for a teacher or an artist or a parent or a student? How does it look for someone much younger than Jesus or much older than Jesus was when he died and came back? That's what it means to follow Jesus. What would Jesus do if he were you? Not as catchy on a bracelet, but it's worth asking nonetheless. Let me pray and ask God's Spirit to speak to us and guide and lead us in this process. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.